Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Unless Congress acts, most federal employees will likely see a 5.2% pay raise in 2024. But even that big of a boost won't be enough to offset a growing wage gap between the federal and private sectors. That's at least what the Federal Salary Council says in its latest report. Here with more is Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, who's been covering the latest numbers. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me, Jared. So what is this latest reported gap? So during 2023, federal employees were earning, on average, about 27.5% less when it comes to salary alone uh, than their private sector colleagues or counterparts, those with similar types of positions. This is an annual measure that the Federal Salary Council uh, reports on, and this is actually a 3% increase this year compared to the pay disparity of about 24% or so that the council reported for 2022. So that is a pretty big number, and you know it is important to note that that has been at least above 20% in terms of how big that gap is between federal workers and private sector workers since 2007. Uh, It's not the biggest it's ever been back in 2015, for example, that pay disparity was nearly 35%. So it's been up and down, but we have seen it trending upward for the last three years or so. And of course, perennial debates around various studies comparing private sector and public sector compensation. Um, So it's worth talking about a bit here how the Salary Council measures, you know, its version of that disparity. So the council takes data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics and from the Department of Labor, and basically they put together, um, you know, a comparison between federal and private sector jobs that have similar job duties and similar just positions. Uh, And it's purely a comparison of the wages. That's important to note because, as you alluded to, not everyone agrees with the way that the council calculates that federal private uh, wage gap. So you have some conservative organizations, for example, saying that if you account for uh, benefits like healthcare, retirement, and you look at different types of data, that they argue federal employees are actually paid more. Of course, that's just one perspective here. But for the councils, uh, the way that they measure it, it is based on, as I said, Bureau of Labor Statistics and Department of Labor data. And based on that measuring rubric, why is there such a big gap? It is complicated, but there's, you know, several different reasons that could go into it. So for one, there's some legal pay caps and pay compression that federal employees see on the upper ends of the general schedule system. The system is also a pretty rigid pay system in general. And you also have the lack of the full implementation of a law Uh, called the Federal Employee Pay Comparability Act, or FEPCA. This is from a law from 1990 that basically allows the government to spend uh, as much funding as they need to give federal employees a big enough raise to bring the wage gap down to 5%, but that was only implemented for just a year or two, and since 1994, no president has actually signed off on a pay raise that large. So if you have... Uh, what you call alternative pay plans for decades, offering smaller uh, pay raises over time, over years to federal employees, you're going to see this wage gap grow. Of course, it also depends on the salaries and the wages for private sector workers. Those fluctuate as well on that end. So that's why you get that kind of up and down from both sides of it. Uh, but at the end of the day, that uh, that gap is growing partly because of 
FEPCA, that law from 1990, and it's estimated that at this point it would cost $22 billion to bring that wage gap down to 5% from the 27 and a half percent that we have currently. Hmm. And, and as we've seen in some of your previous coverage, the, the council does more than just studying pay gaps. What what other recommendations did they make this year? So they sent a list of nine recommendations that they're going to send off to what's called the president's pay agent. This is another uh, board that's going to review their recommendations from the council. And Jared, just a side note to mention that the Federal Salary Council has uh, three presidentially appointed members, as well as some union leaders who look at the uh, wages of federal employees and make suggestions. They generally, if occasionally, not every single year, but they will occasionally add uh, recommendations for new localities, new pay localities across the U.S. They did not add, add any that um, would be for 2025. That's the year that they would be doing this report for. Um but they did recommend a couple interesting things this year. So one was to consider a different way for how annual federal pay raises are calculated. So rather than going just with the president's suggestion, they suggested that you could use the Bureau of Labor Statistics Employment Cost Index or ECI as the base pay raise and then add up to a 1% locality pay boost on top of that. That would at least, you know, not cause the wage gap to grow any larger, maybe not necessarily make it smaller. But if you're comparing the ECI, which measures uh, salaries of private sector workers, and you give the same pay raise on average to uh, federal sector workers as well, I guess their idea is that that would at least prevent the wage gap from getting any bigger. Um, You know, it's not, that's of course just a recommendation. So not to say that that would actually happen, but it's it's one suggestion that they did uh, bring up this year. Okay, and then as far as the next step in these recommendations, including around the pay gap, et cetera, what, what, where do these go from here other than sitting on a shelf? So these will go up to the president's pay agent. This is a three-person panel. Uh, as I mentioned, it's the Office of Personal Management, the Office of Management and Budget, and the Department of Labor. And each year, the council, after this report comes out, they will send uh, their recommendations to the pay agent who then reviews all of those uh, suggestions and then either chooses to adopt the recommendations or not. So, for example, this year we have uh, new pay localities that are going to be added for 2024. Uh, So if there's other recommendations similar to that, they would be adopted for 2025 if if the pay agent chooses to do that. All right. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks very much. Thanks, Jared. And you can find Drew's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and and what's the role of leadership in creating 
and shaping that culture. Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is, 
What do they need when they need it? And building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer and I think it's my dream job really to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. 
And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, 
find my own confidence and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.